0: Hi hey everyone and welcome to the CVM Ireland podcast. Here at CVM we are a search and rescue agency seeking to see men's lives transformed through the power of the gospel of Jesus. We help churches all over Ireland and beyond try to achieve this and help us guys as we journey every day in our lives following Jesus. We want to let you enjoy our recordings from our 2019 DNA Men's Conference which took place in Carmoney. Uh, this happens every year. As we gather hundreds of men from all over the island of Ireland and beyond, as we worship, as we lift up the name of Jesus, and as we encounter Him and get the grips with the challenges He lays out to us as men, so sit back, relax, and be blessed. Here at Carmoney. Uh, for about five years as the worship pastor, and um, it was the best job I've ever had. All right, I know people talk about it often. I've had some pretty rubbish jobs in my life. That was the best job that I had ever had. Again, to work in the congregation that you are deeply rooted in, um, and especially you know for me, getting to do something like lead worship every week was an incredible privilege, uh, 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 and really was at that stage of my life the great privilege of my life. But then God began to chip away. Um, uh, and speak to me and present challenges and opportunities in my life that I knew in my heart of hearts were beginning to unearth something. Uh, If I'm honest, I probably knew it was always there, and that was to go and lead a church, all right? Uh, I'm the son of a manse. My dad is uh, doing the other seminar at the minute, and so with that kind of son of the manse thing came the layers upon layers of baggage that you build up over years. A PK is what they call it in America. There's a whole thing about PKs. Uh, And and if I'm honest, I was uneasy about lots of elements about what it would mean to lead a church, right? Preaching, kind of leading people week in, week out. I, I just didn't want to do it. There was stuff in there that God was working on and had to do some work on. But I knew it was in there. And more importantly than anything else, I knew it was Jesus. And um, around four years ago, following kind of five years of running Alpha courses downtown in the city centre in Belfast with lots of people coming to faith and encountering God and lots of good stuff uh, going on at that time in my life, I had this uneasy, holy Dissatisfaction. I don't know if any of you have experienced that before in life, or if you're in ministry roles, or you lead other men, or you do whatever. That there reaches a stage in life where there's this uneasy or holy dissatisfaction. Like I began to ask myself, like, is this it? Like, is this really all that you have me for? Because it's incredible that these people are coming to know Jesus. But really, is this it? Is this as far as the road goes? Is this all that I'm meant to do? And uh, that question kind of went on and on, and this restlessness kind of sat with me for a while before I began to start to articulate uh, to some people around me that I felt God was calling me to plant a church. We planted Central in October 2016. We had, my first, had our first child, my wife and I, in November 2016. Essentially the worst timing ever, right? Because that first six months of planting a church, you're just tired all the time, right? So we, had our, we planted in October 2016. We had L in November 2016. There were nine people with us at that stage and we were in an arts venue. We just celebrated our third birthday, obviously a couple of weeks ago. uh, And on that Sunday there were about 120 adults with us, 17 kids. We now call the Old May Street Presbyterian Church building in the heart of the city centre home, uh, as we've been given that by kind of incredible provision from God. Um, And that's really been the journey up until now. You, however, are not here to hear about that today, okay. I'm guessing that Spot asked me to come and be part and contribute to this seminar stream because if there was one really re- unique feature to all of that journey from start to where we are now, it's that all through that time I have been working with my dad—not my heavenly father, my actual dad. All right, my, my dad was my line manager when I was the worship pastor here. My dad still remains essentially my line manager now, as we kind of planted from here. He is the lead pastor now over both kind of locations, but I lead the second location. So that's probably been the unique feature. And as I say, he's in the other seminar stream right now, given the other side of that story, kind of working with the generations up and down. So I've been working for my dad all of that time. And the question really is, what have I learned about turning my heart or turning our hearts to our fathers? You know, the people that have gone ahead of us, the people who might still be, ahead of us. What have we learnt about that along the way? If you have a Bible, I wonder if you'd pull it out and just turn to Malachi 4 for me, just for a second. Um, We're just going to read together. It's just a few verses. It's what kind of Spud was getting at whenever he um, looked at this seminar stream and what he kind of wanted out of it. He he based it off that short phrase from Malachi 4. So why don't you pull it out, Malachi 4. We're going to just read six verses really quickly here today. This is God's Word as we read together. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn. The hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What are we getting at here? So Malachi was one of the minor prophets. And the book is one that over time has been kind of notoriously hard to date, okay? It's not one of the books that are very easy to date. Some of them are. Malachi isn't that easy. There's still a little bit of debate about when it is. A lot of scholars now date this book as sometime during the post-exilic period, the same uh, kind of period of time, especially uh, if you know your Bible or you spend any time in any of those kind of minor prophets. What we're talking about is the same sort of period of time as Nehemiah, okay? Lots of you will probably know the story of Nehemiah. It's often preached on, particularly when there's building projects in churches. We kind of dig out Nehemiah around that period of time, right? And they think it's from the same period of time as Nehemiah because of the events that are taking place in that era, all right? Um, That book essentially is looking at the rebuilding of Jerusalem, particularly the walls, right? It's a big feature, the rebuilding of the walls. But the other side of the rebuilding that's going on in that time with Nehemiah is the reformation of the people, right? It's not just a building project. It's about the reformation of the people. And if you know anything about that story, you'll know that through kind of a a real God thing, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He's in Persia. He's there as the cupbearer to the king. That's essentially senior civil servant, right? Don't think of it as a bartender. He's kind of a senior civil servant at the time. He travels from there to Jerusalem to take part in this rebuilding project. Uh, And it's all going great. But then in 433 BC, Nehemiah returns back to Persia to serve the king all over again. And during that period of time, the people of God just go backwards, right? All of the good work, all of the good stuff that has been going on. You know how it is, right? When you've got something to do, people tend to gather around it, you know? We tend to all be singing off the same hymn sheet when we're doing something together. Well, that's what happened. And then they kind of get it done. And then it all falls apart when Nehemiah goes back to Persia. Uh, And because so many of the themes line up between uh, what Nehemiah was wrestling with at that time uh, and what Malachi appears to be talking about, then you would sort of think that these two books are written in that same sort of period of time. So that's the period of time that we're talking about. And what is the heart of the prophet's message, right? What is the heart of what Malachi is trying to say? Because it's one thing to say, hearts of the sons, the fathers, fathers of the sons. But what is that all about? What is he talking about? The heart of his message, the heart, if you could kind of encapsulate it in a phrase or sentence, is one day the great king will come and he will judge his people, but he will also bless and restore them. That's what Malachi says. That's what that passage we just read says, right? It's kind of bleak in parts and also it's incredibly encouraging in parts that's the heart of his message and then right at the end of the book we get this this last couple of verses that we're reading today and this seminar is based on and that is that generations would walk as they were meant to as they turn their hearts to one another that's the picture right walk as you're meant to and do it as you turn your hearts to one another this can be hard right I don't know if you've ever had to work between generations, but turning your heart to the generation above you or beneath you can be hard work. I said that I've worked for years with my dad. I guess probably the most accurate description of that working culture is something like coordinated arguing, right? Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with your dad, or if you do even do like stuff around the house. The best kind of style is organised arguing, right? Like our our leadership style or approach was just to argue about and contest the living daylights out of every idea that either person had for like years and years and years. Honestly, everything that we did. So in my time we argued about song choices, noise levels, personnel, direction, the colours of the lights on Sunday. We fell out about recycling cups and we had a titanic argument one day about whether or not a smoke machine actually created smoke, uh, or whether it was made by water, right? The answer is, it's a hazer, it's water, it's not smoke, right? His side was, it's called a smoke machine, son, right? This is kind of how this goes, right? And this is kind of how our leadership style and our kind of movement within the church and making this, it just worked by pure friction, right? It was iron sharpening iron was literally happening by friction, by contesting, by arguments, and then I planted Central, and some part of me thought, brilliant, get out of the way from the old man, amazing, right? What he doesn't know won't hurt him and all of this sort of stuff. And then I found that it still didn't go away, right? Just because I was out of sight didn't mean that the phone calls wouldn't start. And then he was, well, what on earth are you doing that for, son? And from everything, from what colour we were going to paint the place to all of the things that we were doing, we argued big decisions and small, strategic and irrelevant and on the outside, it probably looked like chaos. But then I realised one day what it was all about. It happened one day after I got married and we moved into our home. And we were having terrible trouble with our TV aerial, right? This is Newton Abbey. Anybody that lives in Newton Abbey knows that the TV reception in this general area is abysmal. And my dad came round to help, right? Now, I'm a millennial, okay? I wear that badge proudly, right? I'm a millennial. And by definition, that means I'm absolutely terrible at DIY, okay? Uh, Ask any millennial, they're by and large terrible at DIY. I'm woeful at it, okay? Dad, however, grew up in that generation that kind of did everything for themselves, right? And the problem with that generation, just as a side note, is they think they know how to do everything. (laughs) But never, ever trust them with your electrical wiring. Okay, anyway, so he comes round, okay? And his generation's kind of way was kind of to get your roll up your sleeves, get on with it. My generation's way is you call a guy, okay, but he comes around to help. And he's in the attic, okay? So he's like three floors up in the attic with cables and signal boosters and he's like drilling holes and things needlessly and he's doing his thing up there. I am in the living room in front of the TV, right? That's how useless he deemed me to be the guy in front of the TV going, no, it's not working, Dad, like that, right? So this is going on for hours. We are literally shouting over three levels. He's half deaf, so that makes it worse. It gets so bad my wife, Joy, leaves the house to go out for the afternoon, right? And this goes on and on and on and then. It works. And we gather all the tools up. I make coffee. We sit in the living room. There's football on TV. And we sit down together. And I realise that the point of all this was never the TV. The point of all of it was never the TV. I could have rang somebody. And they would have come around and done it. And there wouldn't have been any argument. There wouldn't have been any hassle. The point was never the TV. It was never about DIY. It was about doing something together and something about that really resonates right it it seems to capture the heart of God in Malachi come back to me and do it together that's what he's saying come back to me but as you do it do it together thing is that can be difficult right studies tend to show that most generations tend to throw off the thing that the generation before stood for, don't they? Most generations that come after, they don't like the things that their parents' generation did. So, for example, to take songs, okay? I grew up in a generation uh, that had no problem singing like old songs, right? Like we're talking hymns, right? We loved those. But if you asked us to sing Lord I Lift Your Name on High or any of those sorts of songs that my parents' generation loved, you know, that kind of mission praise vibe? No way. We hated them, right? A young person in our youth group at church perhaps best summed it up one time when he told me that he was getting ready to go out and hang out with his mates. He spent a long time getting himself ready. He ran downstairs and on his way out, his dad just so happened to say, son, that's a really nice shirt. I like that shirt myself. And he said his response, so I just ran upstairs immediately and changed the shirt, right? (laughs) You throw off the things that your parents' generation tend to like, don't you? Squash them. Say that's your thing. That's not my thing. Away with it. And as a younger leader trying to point our hearts towards the fathers who went before us, the temptation is so often to push back and throw off off the things they went after, even if they were good. The temptation is to bin it and say, scrap it, new thing, I'm doing it my way. To feel angry or disappointed that certain things never came to be, to feel overlooked. And so our response is very often to feel that we know how to do it better, isn't it? Here's the thing, and it's the spoiler, right? Because it's really all I have to say today. And it is that I'm not sure it's actually possible to turn our hearts to the generations above us. I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if you can just jump from one day feeling aggravated or frustrated or pushed back by the generations that went before. I'm not sure how to do it. But here's what I do know. I can turn my heart to Jesus. The prophet Malachi says that I'm sending Eli- that, that God is going to send Elijah. Why? Because he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. He doesn't say that the fathers are just going to turn their hearts to the sons and the sons are just going to turn their hearts to the fathers. He says he will turn the hearts of one to the other. That's kind of what Malachi is saying. Turn your hearts to Jesus and as you do it, your hearts you will find will be turned to one another. I don't know if you find that at this stage in life, right? As somebody who follows Jesus, that you've ended up having your heart turned toward all sorts of stuff that would not have been your default setting at the start, right? But it happens as you turn your heart to Jesus. You know something? The heart of God always reveals my heart. Every time you read Scripture, every time you come to a conference like this, every time you know somebody prays over you, every time you have a moment with God, and it reveals something of who God is, right? What He's trying to do in the world, what He thinks about you, it reveals my own heart, doesn't it? It puts a spotlight on who I am. It puts a spotlight on my fears and failure, my anger, my frustration, my longing, my hopes we turn our hearts to jesus you want to know how you turn your heart to the fathers as a son you turn your heart to jesus and you let him do the work of turning your heart to the generations above you as i let jesus work uh, on all of those things anger frustration longing hopes hurts disappointments i find that by his spirit and the inside of the word on the inside of his word i find my heart softened to the fathers who go before me turn your hearts to jesus so in that context, right, what have I learned? Really quickly, four things today. The first is this, slow down. Slow the heck down. We live in a world that is relentlessly in a hurry, isn't it? John Mark Comer, uh, who's a pastor, he leads a church in Portland, he's just released a new book, uh, all about hurry. And in that book, it has this line, hurry is incompatible with love. You think about it, right? You, you Your wives, partners, girlfriends, whatever, okay? When you're at that stage in your life, hurry is incompatible with love, isn't it? You want to rush your relationship. It doesn't work. You want to r- rush the romance part. It doesn't work. I remember a, a guy who was leading young adults at one stage in our church, and he was talking to people that were getting ready to get married, and his like great epiphany for all of the group, who, mostly, you know, to the, he was speaking mostly to the males at this stage in the game, but he said, guys, you're about to get married. Here's the lesson, if you want great sex on a Friday night, it starts with breakfast in bed on a Monday morning, right? That was his line, right? You can't rush some things. Hurry is incompatible with love. And the thing is, as a young leader, I've probably been in a hurry my whole life to get to wherever God was leading me. Like, I want it yesterday, right? The end game of where I'm going to be and what God's going to do in my life, like, I want it now. But the point is, it doesn't work that way, does it? It works over the long term. The thing is, what we're called to is, as the great pastor Eugene Peterson put it, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And if we're going to be all that we can be, we'll need our fathers to show us how. The original word for disciple was apprentice or learner, right? And we learn how to walk in the way of Jesus by getting alongside, listening to and honouring those who have walked it further for longer than us. That's how we do it. We need to turn our hearts by turning our ears to the Hymn and learning just to be with those who are on ahead. Like that DIY project at the start had nothing to do with DIY, had everything just to do with being with my father. Even Jesus, right, when he wanted to pass on the kingdom mission of the church, he chose to do his instruction to the twelve by being with them. He chose twelve that he might be with them. Not distant or detached or disinterested, up close. And that will take time, right? Relationship takes time. Turning your hearts to another takes time. Relationship is the key. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Go after what he's doing and do it together, right? Right? Uh, I would say, uh, speaking as a male, doing things together, right? Relationship equals doing things together, doesn't it, right? When you very often find that openness and talking to each other about what's going on in your life doesn't often happen just sat down in a room like this. It tends to happen when you're out running or you're playing football or you're cycling or you're doing whatever. It happens as you do stuff together. Invest in that relationship. You know, I watched my dad lose his mother and his father-in-law in less than a year. And at the time, you know, I probably didn't know how much I needed to see him travel that journey until I lost my best friend a short time afterwards. I needed to see him walk through grief and mourning and pain in that specific way. I needed to see it, right, before I could appreciate how I might have to do that myself. We need to slow down and be with the generation above and see what a long obedience in the same direction looks like so slow down second authority authority You know, we live in a moment where it's possible to be a 10-year-old child with a YouTube channel that has thousands of followers. I say that in jest, but the truth is, at one stage when I was a youth leader at this church, one of our young people who was 12 had a YouTube channel with tens of thousands of followers about Minecraft, right? (laughs) Uh, And that was his thing. But he had all of these people looking to him for influence. And in in a way, in this moment of time, that's what we believe influence and authority looks like, doesn't it? How many followers have you got? That's kind of a metric for our time. But the thing is, we all know that authority comes from that mining into God's purposes through time and experience. The real gold, the real authority is lived in and it's well-worn. That's what authority looks like. So I've learned from leading alongside my dad that there's an authority in handling, for example, God's word. It comes over time. There's an authority in pastoral experience that comes over time. There's an authority in overcoming challenges, in dealing with difficult people, in coping with disappointment, and so on, and so on, and so on. That no matter how gifted or capable or called I might be or you might be, there is a great authority in learning to listen to, yield to, and learn from the lives of our fathers. They have much to offer us because they've walked the road we're on further for longer. You know, we use the term ethos an awful lot in leadership circles or in working environments these days, don't we? We talk about ethos all the time. It's best translated as credibility or character. That's what ethos means. And it's the method of persuasion by the credibility of our lives. Turning our hearts to our fathers is to recognize the credibility or the character of their lives as someone who has let God work with them and in them for much longer Than us. We turn our hearts to them. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We slow down, we recognise authority, we can recognise the myth as well, okay, right? Thirdly there's this myth that uh, when it gets to generational stuff, right, there's this myth that says, of course you need to work with the generations because the young people have all the energy and the older people have all the wisdom, right? I hear that all the time. People talk about younger people having all the energy and older people having all the wisdom. Can I just say today, what a load of rubbish, right? What a load of rubbish, Seriously, I've been in enough Presbyterian session meetings to know that just because you're older doesn't mean that you're speaking with wisdom, right? (laughs) It's true. And equally, as a millennial, I've been around enough people my own age who talk and talk and talk and talk and just never get anything done, right? I've been around enough people my age to know that there's an awful lot more energy in an awful lot more of the older people who are ahead of us. Wisdom and energy are not dished out in this like generational divide. That's not how it works. There's incredible insight and wisdom in young people and incredible energy in older people too. Let's not stereotype and pretend like there's some sort of divide. In the years that I've worked with my dad, I'd say that wisdom has come from both sides and energy has too. Young leaders... Release older people to do things. If you're a younger leader here today and you have some older people around the things that you're doing, whether that's a home group, a men's group, a church that you lead, a worship team, whatever, release some older people to do some things. This is not all about releasing people in their 20s to do everything. Do you know what? Older people have incredible energy, insight and ideas as well. And older leaders, maybe it's time to start listening to some younger leaders too. And finally, there's this future-past axis, right? What am I getting at when I say that? I was watching the Netflix documentary series The Mind Explained the other day. If you haven't watched it, I thoroughly recommend it. But it was exploring the incredible link uh, that is there in everyone's brain between our memories, our past, and our ability to dream, our future, right? There's this link in your brain between your memories... And between your dreams, they are inextricably linked. They come from the same center in your brain. They do the same things. And the science reveals that so much of our ability to dream is tied into how and what we remember. They come from the same place. In many ways, the same things are going on to do two very different things, right? The same part of your brain looks back and looks forward. And I've found along the way that so often in this body, the church, right, the living, breathing body of Christ, our memories speak to our future here too. Our memories speak to our future. Corey ten Boom said memories are the key not to the past but to our future. I find that working with my dad so often the solutions to so many problems are not some like figment of our imagination. They're in our past. They're in our past. And the thing is we don't honour our fathers and mothers by doing what we did or doing what they did, sorry. We don't honour them by just doing what they did. That's the mistake we easily made and we end up honouring traditions and making golden cows out of things they did that don't really matter. We honour them by honouring the investment they made and the legacy they left by taking it somewhere. That's how we do it. And it was working with my father's generation that would so often tell me that the problem here is that we don't look back far enough, right? We talk about looking back, but we just look back one generation rather than three generations or back to what the Bible has to say the early church did, for example, to the heart and to the purpose of why we do the things that we do. Uh, We were doing a series on Sabbath at church, uh, and obviously in this very kind of moment of our age, right, it's a fairly relentless age in terms of smartphones and social media and kind of work never stops now, right? The mobile phone was meant to make work easier. Actually, the mobile phone makes work more difficult for most people because it just never stops. Life never stops. And we were talking about the importance of Sabbath and about switching off phones and creating space and rhythms in your life. And it struck most of us, right? We were in a room. Nearly everybody was under 30. And everybody in the room turned around and said, you know something? Maybe our parents didn't get that so wrong. And I'm thinking back to when I was growing up in the house, right? Sundays meant no TV except for some reason Songs of Praise and Last of the Summer Wine, right? I don't know why that... Why was Last of the Summer Wine okay, right? I do not know why. Football banned, anything about popular culture banned, but Last of the Summer Wine, right? So, but in that time in my life, I was like, what are they doing? Our parents are idiots. They're getting it all wrong. Maybe, do you know what? Maybe they were the ones that were getting it right. As we reach a stage in our lives where, I don't know about you, but lots of churches, mine included, are trying to dig really heavily into what it means to be discipled, right? The discipleship journey. And we're talking about spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines, right? I think back to my parents' generation, and that's just what they did. It's not new, it was normal for them. You read your Bible every day, you learned how to pray. I was out with a young adult the other week, he's never prayed in his life, he comes from a, a really broken family upbringing. His life has kind of been a bit of a catastrophe for a, a long period of time. And, he, and we met to talk about where he's at with his Christian faith and, and he, he doesn't know how to read the Bible so I gave him some good apps that could kind of get him started w- with reading the Bible. And then he said, Dave, like, you talk about prayer all the time, I don't know how to pray. And you know what? Do you know where I went in terms of rhythms to help him pray? The prayer of examine, which is like as old as it gets. The key to helping him learn how to pray was not some newfangled idea. It was like way, way, way back in our past. Sometimes you know the key to our future is in our past and we just don't look back far enough. Those are just a few little bits from me. I wanted to make sure we had time for questions, thoughts, comments, ideas from you guys too. I'm going to hand over to Stuart and let him chat for a bit. I, I find that this conversation so easily ends up happening between people in their 30s and people in their 60s, actually, but I have to realise that I am the older in the way generation to people like Stuart, the one beneath me. Stuart was someone who came onto our teams when he was a teenager into our worship setup. He then interned here with us at Car Money, and now he's on our team uh, as we lead Central. And I thought it would be good to get his input too, okay? I, I, we literally call him our son, okay? And he calls us dad, uh, which is a little bit weird but anyway so over to Stuart he's going to lead the last little bits of this seminar and then to leave some space for you to ask some questions so over to you noobs oh yes you do need this sorry we're going to do a seamless mic transition for the uh recording there you go
1: you got it thanks dad Um, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to build upon what uh, Dave has already has shared. He'd said to me a couple of, maybe about a month ago, about contributing to this seminar. Um, and I, he sort of framed it for me already, but I just wanted to give a little bit of context about me and where, where this comes into play. Um, but when I was about 16, I came on, uh, for, through a pretty random set of circumstances, uh, Dave invited me to uh, come join the worship team here at Car and uh, I didn't really know him. He didn't really know me. Uh, but kind of something happened in that sort of transaction of of him inviting me here. Um, and I think I learned very quickly that someone that I had uh, began to trust in, in Dave as someone who was over me, he was maybe about 25, 26 at the time, uh, had taken interest in investing in me as as, as a musician, firstly, Um, um Christian just as a person he just wanted to invest in me and I think I took that opportunity and um, when it came um, and he's mentioned he's, he's you know he said they had their first child three years ago but it was really 1996 when I was born uh, <laughs> uh, that's kind of where where it, it's, it felt like that you know it felt like I was invited in and um, to a family in some ways and then I came on staff here at Carmoney um as an intern as working with worship and with Dave and with John and I got to see those arguments about smoke machines or hazers or whatever it is you want to call them. I was you know saw those yes, first hand. Yeah. Uh, I do agree, I do agree it's a hazer. Um <laughs> but the thing the thing the thing for me in that um sort of that year particularly, one of the, the things that I learned um was the importance of being around leaders and friends of a generation above and sometimes two three four generations above. Um and not just being around them to learn from their knowledge and from their wisdom, although that was that was part of it. But seeing their learning processes, seeing how they you know grappled with scripture, how they wrestle with the hard stuff going on between you know the world and where that relates to scripture and us, and in the cultural moments that we find ourselves in, um, and learning that to be just being exposed to that was just an incredible um, learning experience for me. And I just like. Thought it was really a reassuring thing to, to see that you know my leaders, um, were wrestling with stuff too, and I wasn't sort of in this alone trying to figure out all of this faith stuff, you know. Um, and for me, what I believe what happens when the hearts of the sons are turned to the fathers is not merely this transaction of information, but it is an invitation into discipleship. And Dave kind of touched on that at the end there. And I think that is what, for me, as sort of coming under this degeneration above, that was what I experienced. It was discipleship, ultimately. And the thing about discipleship is you never reach a completed status, right? You know, you never get to the end of some discipleship scheme. You know, I've graduated, I've, I've completed that. You know, you're never at the end of that process. And that means that there's no age limit to discipleship. We're all sons, we're all learners. Um, that's, that's a twofold process of, one, someone who's eager to be discipled, the, the sons in this, in this uh, scenario, and someone who's intentional about making disciples, the fathers. But the thing is, if we're eager to make disciples, we must be willing to be discipled first, um, even right up to our old age, because God can't do something through you that he hasn't done in you first. Um, and that's why, as sons, it's so important for us to turn our hearts uh, to the fathers. And we see this right in the in the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke two forty one to forty seven just tells of a story in Jesus' life, and uh, this is what it says: Every year, Jesus' parents uh, went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was twelve years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over. While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus uh, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled for a day. Great parenting. Uh, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding. And his answers. You know this isn't this isn't parenting 101. I mean I'm not a parent. But I mean one day is bad enough. Never mind three. But the point that I'm making is at 12 years old. Jesus sat under the teaching. Of those who went before him. In order that one day he would lead and shepherd. The most famous group of disciples that we know. He had to first be taught. And he had to first listen. And understand. Fast forward 20 years. And Jesus is now investing in those who are coming after him. The theologians reckon that the 12 disciples were likely to be as young as 15 when he called them. And discipleship was always at the heart of Jesus' model. And before he walked alongside and discipled others, he had to be discipled himself. His heart was turned to the spiritual and generational fathers first. And I think... I think we need to be putting ourselves under the care, under the teaching, and just being around the lives of those who are going before us and the generations above us. When we turn our hearts to the sons, or as sons to the fathers of faith that go before us, whether they are a few years older than us, um, or like Dave and myself, there's maybe just one generation. I think it is imperative that we do that, and in doing so, we open ourselves to learn. Uh, Dave mentioned this earlier, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Um, and in that book he wrote this, A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. And I believe that we as sons should uh, do all that we can in order that we sit under the craftsmanship of our spiritual fathers. And how do we do that? Well, two really simple things that I've learned kind of as I've journeyed on this process as I've sat under Dave's leadership and John's leadership and uh, been under that whole uh, leadership as a whole um, from when I was 16. uh, I guess I just want to share two things that uh, I thought were helpful as we turn our hearts um, to the fathers. And I think the first one is a learning spirit. We must be willing to learn in my own uh, private readings, just in my, my devotional times recently, I've been reading just through the, the Gospel of Matthew and on several occasions, particularly in the parables, um, Jesus' disciples ask him to repeat his teaching, to explain it again, because they didn't, you know, it was so radical they couldn't get their heads around it and they, they had a a, willing, a willingness to learn. And I think we need the, have the same willingness. The caveat is, with a willingness to learn, we also must hold a posture of acceptance towards correction. And correction is hard. I mean, we all know that. I mean, if you've ever confidently answered a question wrong, it's maybe like, you know that ache you kind of feel when you're like confident, shoot your hand up, and then you're wrong. It's like that ache that you feel. However, in my experience, when correction is done in a way um, that's done in a safe space... And in such a way that's not condemning but is an invitation into another way of thinking or another way of behaving and um, or a, a, a better way of doing something that can be so vital in honing our lives to be more like jesus because that that's the point right so i think we need a willingness to learn but i think certainly we need an open heart you know sometimes as, as dave said we we do a great job of disregarding the the generation that is above us. You know, we do a great job of looking at what they did and poking holes and saying, oh, they should have done it this way or, you know, that doesn't work for us anymore. I mean, just just look at the relationship nowadays between, you know, a Generation Z or Millennial and any politician. You know, it's such a hostile relationship and it's so easy to stand you know, with a placard and uh, a microphone and shout and protest. And we've got such a a protest culture in our world nowadays. I mean, you walk through Belfast on any given Saturday and you'll have a flag protest, you'll have a a climate protest, anything. People are protesting all the time. But the thing is, the church doesn't need any more protesters. What it needs are people who are willing to learn with open hearts from the generations above. You know, that whole scripture has kind of been really hitting me hard over the last few months of they will know us by our love. You know, that's how they'll know us. It's not that we protested well and we won them over by how how well we spoke to them and how well we, you know, argued for the case of Christianity. No, it's our love. And when we have a, a willingness to learn and an open heart to the generations above us, we will allow ourselves to be discipled well. And we will see less people, you know, pointing fingers at the older generations. And we'll see unity and togetherness and Christ-likeness, and like Christ likeness, which will be the hallmarks, which should be the hallmarks of the church. And that requires all of us. We all partake in that. And I really believe that discipleship comes from that posture. Um, so that's kind of what I learned, a willingness um, to learn, but having an open heart with that too. Um, so that's kind of where, where I wanted to, to wrap up today. I think we're going to move into questions, five or ten minutes of questions. Um, so yeah, I think we need to be people who are willing to learn from the generations that are above us, and we must do that with an open heart. Jasmine. Give these guys um, I, I just want to just guide your questions towards these guys.
0: Um, please um, don't be afraid to uh, um, to ask questions, um, we've got about eight, nine minutes. Um, let's let's ask some questions and, and learn from these guys. Thank you. I find it very helpful. Yeah, a great question just for the recording question is about was there times when uh, kind of uh, the disagreements went a bit further than just uh, solving them in the moment? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff we didn't... I mean, sort of put it in context, uh, we were... Uh, so with central... Uh, Uh, we were at one stage in a conversation about potentially receiving the May Street Presbyterian Church building, which uh, I was absolutely like, from the the minute it happened, I'm in, right? I'm like, this is the most incredible opportunity. All I saw was an opportunity. All Dad saw was like a two million quid risk, right? That's the truth. And so the first couple of weeks were like, you, son, I think you need to take some time to think about this. And I'm like, Dad, we are in, right? And and it was this kind of debate went on, and so yeah, I think there is space. I do think there is genuinely space for, um, it, I, I guess the greatest wisdom he passed on at that point was like, you need to take some time out of this, get away. Write down, you know, your thoughts, begin to listen to God and listen to other people, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. What is the spirit saying? How is he leading? Uh, And that was probably the greatest wisdom. I guess a lot of the time, you know, the challenge is not to tell people what to do. It's to help them how to think, isn't it? And uh, I think he probably helped me most in that period of time. With how to think and how to process and how to lead into that moment, but yeah, I mean, there's been plenty of times when we've needed a little bit of space and time to figure that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else?
1: David, I would say in that space to uh, remember that the honoring of our parents remains intact. Mm -hmm. We're obedience, not necessarily. But the honouring of I yeah. think helps, helps form the unity that we're created for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that being a big part of you are called, even though you come underneath the umbrella of your father, mm-hmm. the, the honouring of him is still to be there. Yes. And so that helps guide and direct how we interact and, and do
0: relationships. And I think we get that so wrong so easily. I think we, we deal in obedience more often than honour. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's not easy, but obedience can happen in all sorts of ways. I mean, you can coerce into obedience, but honour doesn't work. Honour is given. You know, honour and authority is given, never taken. It's like on the road, whenever someone says, I have the right of way, well, you can't take. You know, you give the right of way, you don't take the right of way. It's like that. Authority is always given and not taken. It, it, ultimately, the thing with that passage as well with Malachi is, is it, it's that he will change the hearts to one to the other, right? So even if I turn my heart to my father, there's no given that the father's turn the hearts to the sons, but that's not my deal. You don't turn that off because it may not be you know, reciprocated. Your deal is your attitude, your posture, the honor that you give the other way. That's your deal. That's what you, you have to work on with your own heart. Whether it comes back or not, that's not your heart to work on. It's, it, that's you know between them and God to work on their hearts. I just have to work with mine. And uh, I I agree. I, I think so often, especially in Northern Ireland, we get so caught into traditions which are more about just doing what our fathers did rather than the legacy and what they instilled and input into us, which was not just to do what they did. It was to take the raw materials and the stuff that they built and led and all of that and take it somewhere new like take it somewhere else don't just do what they did go somewhere with it go somewhere new somewhere maybe they didn't see they never saw where you might take it but they saw you know their own ministry to the end of when they handed it over so yeah 100% with you 100% I uh, you, I mean, do you want to jump in, in uh, ASD? So and then I'll pass to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, there are a couple of things. I, I think there is space for separated areas. OK? I think there are unique periods in your life. Young people, definitely. Uh, students, for example, I think that's another. Once we pass students, I start to become really uncomfortable with the term young adult. I'm like, there are young adults who are still clinging on to that, and they're like 37. I'm like. <laughs> Really, plus it's so it's so broad, right? I mean, you could be in your early twenties, be um, uh, you know, be a mother or a father of several kids, married, doing all the stuff, or you could be in your early twenties and still at uni. You know, it's too, it's too broad. And one of the things I think that's really important, especially with the generational stuff, is just like putting yourself in a position where you're learning alongside people that are a bit older than you. I think th- there is a natural kind of distillation that happens. Okay, so I, I, at one stage here at Carmoney, I. My wife and I were asked to lead a home group. We were in our early 20s. And we did our very best to gather some older people into that home group. Okay? We had four older people. They were known as our VIPs. Uh, one of them died, actually. It wasn't due to us, but one of, <laughs> one, one of them died. They, they, they died at, you know, at one stage. In it. And so we had three of them, right? Um, and the rest were all in their, in their early 20s. The problem was then you kind of reached who you had in a way that we just kept reaching more people in their 20s. And as that happened, the older people felt more and more sidelined. So there is an element of this that you have to work really hard at reaching the generations that you don't necessarily have, even in a small group context. But for me, yes, I, I think there are pros to kind of separating and working with kind of age groups. And I think definitely there are some that have distinct features and stuff along the way but I do also think that at every step even if you have a youth group even if you have that you know those sorts of things I think it's really worth trying to create opportunities for generations to be with and speak into each other's lives not in a tokenistic kind of Way that lots of us do that kind of cracks me up, you know. Um, Even on a leadership level, we create like committees for the young people to speak, and then the things the young people say are like funneled into the older people for them to make decisions about whether they'll listen to them or not. You know, I can't stand that. I think we need a way of allowing especially when, when the way in which we're meant to be discipled is, is to be with one another, to learn from one another, not at a distance, up close and personal in each other's lives. Uh, the question I ask our leaders, and I asked this to Stuart the other week, so I don't feel uh, that there's a lack of integrity in asking, us, asking this, is who is close enough to your life to notice that there's anything different about you? Realistically, we talk about this stuff And as a leader, if any of you lead stuff, you will know that the temptation is to become more and more distant from the people that you actually lead. And the bigger the organization grows, the more you're working through teams. So you work with teams and they work with people, right? But the danger is to become more and more detached to do leadership by email or in this day and age WhatsApp groups. And the truth is, who is close enough to your life to notice that which Jesus has done and that which Jesus is doing in your life? And especially in an intergenerational sense, how are we putting them in a room so that they're spending enough time to actually rub off and encourage and challenge each other along the way? That that would be my kind of thinking. I do think, especially with things like home groups, it is desperately worth making the effort to have cross-generational stuff where you can. I think there's other times where it's right that young people can talk about their issues and students about theirs, and they may never open up with, you know... They're talking about their porn addiction to Sadie, who's 65. Like, I get that that might not happen. But I do think where it's possible to have cross-pollination, all the better. We had a 20-year-old woman. Actually, she just turned 30. She lost her husband. And in a home group full of people, mostly in their 20s, right... As you can imagine, somebody says something like that, suddenly everybody else that's whining about their manager and work and whining about, oh, it's just so hard, I don't have enough money. You know, did, Everyone's doing that sort of stuff. When somebody says, well, I've lost my husband, the whole group just goes, ooh, and like nobody can say anything because it's like, how do, how do you speak to that? And then one of our older people who had lost her husband quite a few years before, she just turned around and said, I know, I know what it feels like, I know how it hurts. And she just started to speak into how her journey through the grief and recovery from that had happened. And I realized in that moment that the gener- that generation had more to say on that topic. And there was only three of them. There was like 20 of the rest of us in the room. That one person had more to say than the 20 of the rest of us They all just put our heads down and sort of said, I'll pray for you. You know, those like, how, how, how did we go there? She knew how to go there. So that, yeah, I do think where you can have generational stuff all the better. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've been blessed by today's teaching. For more information on our ministry and everything that we do or get in contact, head over to our website, cvm.ie. Hope to see you soon.